welcome to another episode of The Intellectuals. Uh, first thing I'd like to do is to thank CD Media for graciously providing a platform for these important discussions. Uh, I am a founder, one of the co-founders and a vice president for a new nonprofit called Stand Together Against Racism and Radicalism in the Services. You can learn more about us at stars with two R's dot US. Our guest today is uh, one of my heroes, uh, Miss Elaine Donnelly. She's been in the trenches fighting important battles uh, for our military folks. And it's a tremendous honor and privilege today to, to interview you, Elaine. And before we get into the questioning, I want our viewers to just to know who we're dealing with. First of all, the Center for Military Readiness is an, an independent nonpartisan public policy organization with a unique mission, reporting on and analyzing military slash social issues. CMR promotes high standards and sound priorities in the making of military personnel policies and takes the lead in defending elements of military culture that are essential for morale and readiness in the all-volunteer force. Now, that doesn't say a lot about Elaine personally, and I was fascinated to learn a lot more than I already knew about Elaine in a biography posted on her at the Independent Women's Forum, uh, a group that you are one of their leading advisors for. And I just want to share just the opening lines because uh, these are awesome. It says, when it comes to taking verbal abuse, Elaine Donnelly, founder and president of the Center for Military Readiness, takes it in stride as an occupational hazard. Doesn't it hurt to be the target of name calling? The unflappable Elaine replies <clears throat> that all conservative women get hit with insults. More serious was a lawsuit instigated and cheered on by feminist activists, which challenged her First Amendment rights to report the truth about double standards in naval aviation training back in the 1990s. I have to tell you, Elaine, when you were doing that, I was at the Pentagon at during a time when readiness was a big issue. And General Fogman was the chief of staff and he was invited to go to the White House when President Clinton was in office to share with him our concerns about readiness. So I learned then how challenging it is to even define readiness when you're dealing with such a complex organization as the Department of Defense. But you are probably the leading voice when it comes to readiness. And I can't thank you enough for the, the mission you've taken on. Thank so, you so much. So welcome, Elaine. Uh, this is going to be a great interview because I'll tell you what, you are dealing with issues that are at the tip of the spear right now. And so if you don't mind, I'm going to jump in there and then ask you to share with our viewers your thoughts on readiness as it relates to the military and how you came about to found the Center for Military Readiness. Well, readiness, of course, is a, a broad concept. It's a, a value that's very important. Uh, when young men and women join the military and they put their lives on the line, uh, I consider it a duty as a civilian to support the troops in a very unique way. Uh, thank you for all your kind words. And I do want to uh, explain the, um, the, the need to fight for the right 
to explain to write about uh, military social issues. That was a long fight. That litigation was designed to shut us up and make us go away, and it didn't work because everything that I wrote was true. Uh, three courts all the way up to the Supreme Court threw that lawsuit out because um, the diligence that we did, the advisors that I had on the issue of combat aviation, it was not about women in combat. It was about high standards and not compromise standards, not double standards, but high uniform standards for both men and women. That was a battle worth fighting. And although it was very painful for eight and a half years, it was probably the largest, longest uh, lawsuit of its kind. It's what they call a slap suit, strategic litigation against public participation. It was worth doing because the issue of high standards in military training, it's so important. It's important for morale, certainly for readiness, uh, we cover the whole spectrum of issues, not just aviation or, or the Navy or the Air Force, but the Army, the Marine Corps, National Guard. Uh, we, we cover it all. And we've done it now for over 25 years. And I don't claim to be an intellectual. I don't, as, as your series is, don't claim to speak for military people. But what I do do is make it clear that military people's voices are not being heard. And if I can, in some way, express views that I know are out there and that are important to men and women in the military, that's what we do. So um, how did this happen? As a civilian, uh, I had uh, an opportunity that most civilians and certainly civilian women don't have, and that is to see the culture of the military close up. I was appointed to a Pentagon Advisory Committee called Dakowitz Defense Advisory Committee on Women in the Services. This was way back in, in the 1980s. I was a young mom, had no idea what these issues were all about, but I noticed two things, that there was a certain politics of the Pentagon that officials were afraid to cross feminist advocates and many of them in uniform. And although I admired those military women a lot, I could see how they would intimidate captains, colonels, even generals. And I would say, wait a minute, that's not right, because the captains and the colonels and the generals would talk to me later and say, this is why it's going to be a problem. But they wouldn't say it publicly because of the politics of the Pentagon. So fast forward to the uh, Presidential Commission on the Assignment of Women in the Armed Forces. This was in 1992. Same thing. When we went out to the field and I went to every military base I could to talk to men and women in, in uniform, in that year, they had permission to speak to us freely, but they couldn't speak openly in other ways. When that experience was done, I founded the Center for Military Readiness to stay current on all of the issues, the military social issues. So we don't deal with hardware, how many ships and planes there are. Uh, we're not a veterans group, but we do cover the politics of the Pentagon. And I, it, I do this because I believe that civilian, civilian control of the military means that we as civilians, we need to do oversight of the people who do oversight of the military. So that's what we do. It's an important mission. We're a small organization, but we have a very special and unique mission, and I'm very privileged to be able to do this. Well, you know, you, you said some things that really uh, caught my attention. Politics of the Pentagon. You know, we're dealing with issues right now <clears throat> as it relates to diversity and we have people on active duty that are very reluctant and well-trained not to speak out against 
the political infiltration of some of this ideology. And so it's been a real challenge and which justified standing up our outfit stars, really which is. is way, way behind the learning curve. Uh, I mean, you've, you've been paving the way for decades now. Uh, well, so I was going to ask, you know, the recent National Defense Authorization Act had provisions for women having to register with the Selective Service. Right. And I know you took that on personally and and developed uh, briefs to send to Congress, which appears to have had an impact. Can you share uh, that experience? Well, this is an, an issue that I care about. Actually, even when I was a mom of two little girls, I didn't want my daughters to be subject to selective service in the draft, but I was very curious. I wanted to find out who was pushing this cause and why. So I started researching it. And the more I looked at it and when I had the, the opportunity to visit military bases and see how they worked and how men and women depend on each other, uh, the importance of unit cohesion, high standards, all of those things, I realized that selective service is, it, it, it's, hasn't been used in a long time, but it serves a, a, a mission of like, it's like an insurance policy. But if there is a catastrophic national emergency, we shouldn't do anything that would make the job more difficult and more dangerous. And the job is what? Defending America. Uh, there's nothing more important than that. So it's not a woman's or, or men's issue. It's not a matter of whether men resent women or not. We know women have always stepped up and served in uniform and they always will. And I admire and respect them so much for the, for the work that uh, military women do in the service. But to say that we would involve uh, women who do not want to be in the service, who would prefer uh, not, not to serve their country in that way. Everybody can serve their country in some way, but not in the military. Uh, it, it was very obvious in the debate this past year. It was all about equity. It was all about politics. It was all about ideology and theory. It had nothing to do with reality. We thought we were going to lose this battle because of the administration. Um, there were some Republicans who were confused. They voted the wrong way in the Senate. And for a while there, it looked like we were going to lose this battle after many, many years. It's a legacy issue that the Republicans have stood for for a long time. But then something very interesting happened. A number of organizations realized they had to do something, and they did. And some of the larger organizations mobilized a lot of phone calls. I was sending messages to people in the Congress to say, well, what if you tried this? What if you tried that? We're not a lobbying group, but we do provide information and background. We have historic memory going back decades. So we, we even look back to when Sam Nunn was chairman of the Armed Services Committee. How did he deal with selective service? Well, he did that in a very, um, very responsible way. Certainly, uh, they decided that, okay, we'll register young men, but not women. They did it for sound reasons. And all I said was, Shouldn't Congress do the same thing today? Take it seriously. Much to our surprise, and certainly we were very happy, this time that legislation did not pass. Will it come back? Yes, I'm sure it will in the coming new year. Um, but as long as standards are held high as, and we have sound principles for the military, you shouldn't make policy for any other reason than to keep the military not only strong, but improve the military, strengthen it, at all times. So anything that detracts from that, uh, whether it's compromise standards or critical race theory, 
Uh, all of these issues need to be dealt with in a very serious, objective manner. I appreciate the STARS organization for standing up. Uh, you have a special mission because you've been looking at the service academies, and I visited all of them in uh, previous years, but you have more insight, more insight and more access. You're able to reach people with recent experiences at the service academies, and that's a very good thing. Uh, we all have to work together. Uh, there's not too many organizations that are dealing with these issues, but they become more and more important as every year goes by. Well, thank you for that, Elaine. <clears throat> I have to tell you, we have filed numerous Freedom of Information Act requests, and we're not getting any answers uh, yes. in compliance with the law, which reinforces our concerns that there's been a tremendous deliberate lack of transparency. Uh, the Board of Visitors have not met, uh, even though now that uh, it's been determined that the Secretary of Defense is shutting down of the Boards of Visitors was not legal, not appropriate, but they still haven't met at the Air Force Academy. So, so we have some concerns about uh, the legality of things. You know, it, it's one thing to have different political views, but it's another thing to, to basically snub your nose at the law. It and, certainly is. And, and we're seeing too much of that happen. Right. And I have a lot of experience with FOIA as well, going back decades. And once they found out that when I put in a FOIA request and I received information and I actually wrote about what I learned from that, those uh, documents and hmm. that information, all of a sudden the FOIA request dried up. And, and that's not right. FOIA should be available to anyone. We should know what's going on in the Pentagon right. because every issue they deal with at the Pentagon, it's a matter of life and death. We shouldn't ask anyone to put on the uniform, put their lives at risk. If the policymakers in the Pentagon are making policies that help themselves more than our military as a whole, um, through all the years, even the issue of aviation and uh, litigation, everything that we, that we were dealing with, it was never about the men or the women in the military. It was about the policies. Why was a female aviator rushed to the fleet why did a, a mishap occur had never occurred in the same way in history before she lost her life it turned out she had been rushed to the fleet because of embarrassment in the navy over the tailhook scandal that occurred back in 1991. Uh, this came out in the course of discovery it's a fascinating chapter of how politics affects uh, political decisions in the military and i hate to say it but there are political decisions being made in the Pentagon yeah, for the wrong reasons. So when I discover these things and there, I have a lot of allies, I have uh, some of the highest ranking and, and just outstanding advisors who have been there for me to understand not just the language of the Pentagon, but certainly things that you need to know if you're going to write about these issues with credibility. Our challenge is, of course, to write things that civilians can master and understand, but with the credibility that high-ranking generals and admirals say, you know, CMR's got it right. And I do hear from people who say, you know, you have it right, but they won't say it publicly. And that's okay. We just want to make sure that we do everything we can to support the troops. It's a very unique form of uh, public policy involvement. This is our way of supporting the troops. And uh, frankly, we need support from more people who, who share our concerns as well. Uh, some of the newer issues that we're dealing with are so intense, they're very important. Uh, certainly critical race theory, the diversity 
exclusion, or excuse me, diversity, equity, and inclusion, DIE policies that cause discrimination to occur. These are demoralizing issues. They are divisive. Uh, they hurt unit cohesion, that bond of trust that must occur within any given unit. Uh, also the issues of women in the military. The idea of pretending that men and women are identical in the infantry or special operations forces, units where women are at a disadvantage uh, and, and physical uh, differences do matter. These kinds of issues are not going away. They're going to be with us for a long time. And all we're saying is don't make decisions based on politics, make the decisions based on the best interests of our military, to strengthen our military, to support our men and women who put on that uniform and volunteer to serve. Uh, as they say, it's a big mission. We're a small organization, but we know, even though I may be, uh, sometimes people say, oh, you're the minority. Oh, no. I've always believed, especially with people in the military, we're in the majority, but people in the military are not really free to express many of the views that we write about all the time. Well, I, back in my doctoral training, one of my professors wanted me to write a paper on the difference between uh, American policy in general and military policy. And I said, you know, you asked the question implying that they're mutually exclusive. He goes, well, aren't they? I said, well, military policy is a subset. Yeah, we're, we're different and there's more restrictions and whatever, but, you know, we're still, we still represent the general population. And he had a very difficult time understanding that. But, you know, we're talking about social changes and whatever. Uh, what is driving the, the support for, like, say, transgender uh, privilege in the military where they accommodate the costs of uh, medical procedures, the cost of not being deployable uh, because, you know, they're recuperating, re rehabilitating. And aside from the Judeo-Christian moral implications of promoting or supporting something like that, from a policy perspective and readiness, you know, what are your thoughts about uh, to what extent we should go to accommodate uh, these sorts of orientations? Well, when this issue first came up in the administration, toward the end of the administration of Barack Obama, it was difficult to deal with it. And it still is to a certain extent, because people who have confusion about gender, about sexual identity, uh, you have to have compassion. This is a, a, a psychological condition. It does inspire compassion. They certainly deserve competent medical care, but it's been politicized by the organized LGBTQ, ABC, uh, <laughs> it's a long list, uh, the faction that pretends that some things are not real, a faction that pretends that gender uh, is different than biology, that sex doesn't matter, that male and female are, are not uh, biological realities when they are. So when we first heard about this issue, it was uh, naturally very disturbing, but it was at the end of the administration. Along came President Trump. And after many months, he put a, a panel together and he studied the issue. And he looked at it from the standpoint of gender dysphoria, the psychological condition. So that Trump policy was well on its way to being upheld as constitutional by the Supreme Court. And the reason was 
it was not about transgenders. It was about people who suffer from gender dysphoria. Uh, there was a lot of evidence that the panel of experts found that when gender dysphoria is part of a person's makeup, just as with other psychological and physical conditions, it does affect readiness, ability to deploy. It's the kind of thing that the military does not really have a good reason to accommodate. Uh, again, we have compassionate for people with that illness, but there are a lot of illnesses where a person who has them is not eligible to be in the armed forces. So the policy went through lower courts, lawsuits were filed. Um, we were all part of that policy uh, or that process, I should say, because the advocates, the LGBT advocates tried to prove that the president had ulterior motives. It was uh, quite a bizarre process actually, but uh, I think the Supreme Court would have upheld the policy ultimately, but elections have consequences. Now the Biden administration has gone beyond where Barack Obama did. And we haven't seen all the details yet. We know that the Veterans Administration is being pressured to pay for very expensive surgical procedures for persons who request them and hormone and other treatments that can be lifelong. Uh, this, this is the kind of burden that the military really should not be uh, expected to carry for reasons of equity. How does this improve or support readiness? Um, well, I think it's pretty obvious that the Trump administration did have a good idea um, and, and it was a compromise. It was a nuanced policy. Again, it was not about transgenders. It was about uh, gender dysphoria. But we won't know because the administration now has pretty much uh, reversed and we're, we're going to find out more details in the future exactly how it's going to play out. Well, that, that really brings us to the withdrawal from Afghanistan and from some perspectives, mine included, there seemed to be some political indifference to the investment that had been made in lives and treasure in terms of our mission over there, granted decades long. Uh, and I think everybody was very supportive of eventually pulling out of Afghanistan, but the way it was accomplished really concerned many people, myself included. Was, and so this this political indifference, and now all of a sudden we see vaccinations being mandated. We have uh, service members that are being discharged uh, for refusing to take the vaccination for a variety of reasons, religious exemptions, which are being denied, and uh, uh, natural immunity, people that have been uh, infected with it, and they overcame it with their natural immune system are being disregarded, uh, but because they refuse to take the vaccination, which is still an emergency authorized vaccination, my understanding, uh, from the FDA. Um, so there's there's been a lot of tamping down on individual freedoms in within the military, which appears to be pretty disruptive. Your thoughts on that? When we look at any issue, we look at what are, what is the sound policy that will support military readiness and morale and discipline. So we have not taken a direct position yet on this vaccination thing, but it is very disturbing to see really good people being fired from the military, uh, kicked out, uh, religious exemptions, which are part of the First Amendment, not being respected. We have taken positions on uh, matters of religious liberty in the armed forces. Uh, to see 
the kind of doctrinaire extreme application of the policy regarding vaccinations. It's very disappointing, very dis well, it's, it's the kind of thing that I think Congress is trying to intervene. They tried to in the last Congress, the last defense bill, maybe next time they'll be a little bit more successful in straightening this out. As far as Afghanistan is concerned, that was appalling to see the way that retreat was conducted. It did not found or follow sound policy. You don't take the military out first and then expect the Americans and civilians and allies to fend for themselves. It made no sense. That was a matter of foreign policy and it was a failure. This administration will be accountable for it in the future. But we think in the, in the next election cycle, what we need to do is talk to members of Congress, talk to candidates for the Senate especially, and make sure that they understand what sound policies are all about. Uh, we've prepared a list, kind of a, a, a statement, a platform, a number of issues that we intend to question the candidates about and the presidential candidates in 2024. Every four years, we do a candidate survey, a presidential candidate survey, and we do it for a two-way reason. It helps to educate candidates when they're running, and it also helps voters to understand which of the candidates are the most pro-defense. So this is something I'm sure we're going to be doing in the coming year, and uh, we will also work with Congress. We hope we don't face an emergency like we did last year on the defense bill, but we have to be ready, and uh, it's going to be a very complicated year, I'm sure. Well, I've, I've seen your list of uh, goals or whatever that you and do you have them posted on your website yet? Not yet. They we're about to post them. Um, and we're also going to go to some of the leaders in Congress and say, you know, you can deal with these as well. And, and there's um, some task forces that are being set up on the House side. Uh, we know that Senator Tom, Tom Cotton and others are looking at the future. What should we deal with in the future? And uh, we deal with them and provide information and hopefully encourage them to do the right thing. One thing's for sure, pressure comes from the other side all the time. So uh, quite often it comes from people who really don't know or care about the best interests of the military. Uh, we deal with issues of sexual assault as well. Uh, we track the numbers from the Pentagon. The Pentagon report on sexual assault comes out every year and every two years there's a what they call a workplace survey. Uh, these reports are very thick, they're complicated, but I've gotten to the point now, I know exactly where to find the, the most important data is usually buried somewhere in an appendix. And what you find there are rates that are continually going up. It is, it is a very sad thing to see that sexual assault is, it continues to be a huge problem in the armed forces. Um, unfortunately though, uh, some of the solutions being offered are not going to help. Uh, what we're saying is we need policies that encourage discipline rather than indiscipline. And if you, that's a general concept, but when you think about it, if you want discipline rather than indiscipline, well, you wouldn't house men with women uh, for reasons of what, transgender advocacy or someone pretends or thinks he's a woman. So that means he should have access to the private facilities of women. What about female athletics at the service academies? Uh, should men, biological men, be allowed to compete against women what is the cost of doing that? Is that fair? Is that right? Uh, these kinds of issues, I think they're going to get even more prominent in the coming years. We've been warning about these consequences for many years, 
but the Biden administration is bringing everything to a head. So the next president is going to have a big job to do to uh, mitigate some of the damage. One thing is for sure, military is a, um, it, it, it's a resilient organization. Uh, one thing I noticed very early on in my exposure to the armed forces is that everybody must follow orders. So that means uh, where the orders come from and on what uh, premises are the, are the orders given, this is very important. So if the new president, the next president says, this is going to be the new policy, then the military will salute and say, okay, that's the new policy. At least we hope they will. Um, president Trump did that uh, when he modified the policy regarding gender dysphoria in the armed forces. There was some resistance in the Pentagon, and I know exactly who was doing that resistance. Uh, President Trump could have done a better job in making sure that there were people there at the Pentagon who would faithfully carry out his policies. Uh, maybe the next president will do a better job of that, but we tracked it every step of the way and uh, even found ourselves being subpoenaed just like we're seeing subpoenas right now from some of the members of Congress. Well, we want to find out, did this organization, CMR, influence this horrible policy? Well, it was ludicrous. We had to fight that for two years. It was uh, laughable, but um, that's the way the left sometimes works. If they don't like what you're writing about or saying, then they'll go to court or try to shut you down in some other way. Uh, yes, as I said before, it is part of the cost of doing business. Well, you've been... You've been a true champion, Elaine. Uh, you've been doing this for how many years now? 26, 27? Over 25 years. I guess 20, we're going on 27 now. Going on 27. Uh -huh. You know, I, I liked one of the excerpts from your about page at the Independent Women's Forum. Uh, you said, what policymakers are doing here is creating problems that men and women in the military don't need. Part of the reason I formed the Center for Military Readiness is I don't want to see policies put in place that make military life more difficult and more dangerous. Exactly. You'll notice in my writings that I am not critical of the men and women who serve. I admire and respect them. My criticisms, my questions are always aimed at the policymakers. They are the ones who put diversity ahead of combat lethality. That's right. and I'll tell you what, it, it's, you know, we're, we're blessed to have a champion such as yourself uh, fighting for military readiness. You know, when we think about the threats out there, <clears throat> China is looming and they may be directly involved in some of the things we see playing out in America right now. And that is a huge issue. We have to get independent of China uh, for our medical, uh, certainly medical uh prescriptions and equipment and consumer goods. Uh, the Chinese have really worked themselves into a position where they can cut things off at a whim. Uh, this is not just a competitor. When you hear Pentagon officials talking about how we will compete with the Chinese when the Chinese are trying to do harm to Americans, uh, this is frightening and it's, not, it's an example of policies not being sound, of uh, being um, the easy way out it's the kind of thing that, again, civilians need to hold people accountable uh, in whatever walk of life or whatever the issue is. Uh, again, we don't we don't get into foreign policy or the the debates that occur at other levels, but I'm familiar with many of the experts who do, and and read carefully what they say because 
men and women who volunteer to serve, they, they are under policies under which they will either live, they will die under some of them. Uh, when we see what happened in Afghanistan and 13 of our soldiers lost their lives, uh, these things have consequences. Uh, when we see the one of the more recent issues is whether extremism in the military, how that should be dealt with. I just finished an article about how the new extremism report didn't even look at the kind of extremism that led a, a person who was radicalized, a, a jihadist radical by the name of Nadal Hassan. He was a psychiatrist. He was at Walter Reed Hospital. Uh, everyone knew he was a jihadist. He talked about it, about killing fellow soldiers. He he talked about, um, well, it was a descent into madness, uh, flashing red lights. This man uh, had no place in the army, but they did not dis dismiss him. They sent him to Fort Hood, where he killed 13 soldiers and one unborn child. And uh, NPR did an interview. Why did that happen? Why didn't the people at Walter Reed do anything? And you know what the answer was? Because they were afraid that they would be accused of violating the civil rights and the diversity of one Nadal Hassan. He was the only Muslim psychiatrist at the time. And General Casey, the uh, chief of staff of the army said, well, this has been a tragedy, but I hope it won't interfere with our efforts toward diversity. Uh, excuse me, you're putting politics and ideology above the safety and best interests of people in the military. And in that case, lives were seriously lost. Uh, we've written about a number of cases where radicalized soldiers did turn their guns on fellow soldiers. This is wrong. And yet the <coughs> Pentagon right now, all they're looking at are the neo-Nazis and the white supremacists and other um, knuckleheads, people who climbed the walls in the, in the uh, United States Capitol. Uh, these kinds of people, they don't belong in the military, but there are far more of the other stripe and we need to be even handed about this. We don't need extremism in the military we should all be opposed to that, but we don't need a Pentagon that says, "Well, this kind is okay, but that one is not okay," or we're not going to we're not going to go after the leftist groups, including the Black Lives Matter faction that was involved in 84 or 85 percent of the cases of violence, mm -hmm. in civilian incidents, and this was tracked by uh, an outfit affiliated with Princeton University. Uh, why are we putting on the blinders? Why should the Pentagon put on the blinders? And yeah, maybe it's a little more sensitive to go after the left uh, than the right, but we need to be even handed about these things. And to me, that's only common sense. Uh, you don't have to be a military expert to figure that out, uh, but you do need to have courage sometimes because people will criticize you. Right, amen. Uh, <clears throat> we'll ask CD Media to provide a link to that article on extremism uh, for our viewers. Uh, Elaine, I'll tell you what, there's so many more questions I'd love to ask you, but in the interest of time, what what would you share with your viewers as the most pressing issue that you're working right now? Well, um, there are so many different issues that it, it's hard to pick just one. The annual National Defense Authorization Act process will be starting up pretty soon. Last year, it got delayed well into the fall. Uh, last year's bill had a number of issues that were bad that we had to deal with. I think there needs to be more attention to what's going on with our women in the military, in the combat units, um, because what we're finding, there's evidence that the, the um, experiment is not working. 
Uh, we're finding that the Army Combat Fitness Test, for example, there's been an attempt to have gender neutral standards, but it's not working. Uh, the women are just not able, as hard as they try, and they can be 100% physically fit, ready to go. But when you put them up against men who, who inherently have more physical strength, the women are always going to be at a disadvantage. So the gender neutral standards don't work. Uh, women wind up scoring very low or they fail the test. And now they're trying to manipulate things and say, well, we'll look at the um, percentiles. The top woman will pretend is the same as the top man. Well, that may look everything, you know, gee, this is a number one top rated woman on the ACFT, the uh, Army Combat Fitness Test, but everyone knows that isn't consistent with reality because even the strongest women usually come in in physical comparisons at, at about the, the lower uh, quarter of, of uh, physically fit men. So what do we do with that? I think we need to reassess policies that were imposed on the military in 2015. We know that the Marine Corps did an extensive study for three years. We wrote a lot about this study and the results of the study, the Pentagon attempted to hold back uh, many of the results. Uh, I've had a FOIA pending for years to find out why did the Commandant of the Marine Corps ask for exceptions for the infantry and special operations forces. The Pentagon refuses to provide that document, but there is a voluminous set of uh, data and studies we're probably the only outfit that really read the results of all those studies. And what you see there are compelling reasons why uh, we need women in the military, but we shouldn't pretend or treat them exactly like men. And certainly respect for biology, the desire for privacy, that is part of it too. Uh, if you treat women in such a way, this is an, an example of policymakers not caring about people living under their policies, under the transgender policy, the Obama administration had a guidebook and it said, well, if women don't like the idea of their private spaces being invaded, you know what the answer was? They should get used to it. Really? Wow. Uh, why should we make military life more difficult and more dangerous and more uncomfortable? We need good people in the military, men and women. Uh, these kinds of policies make it easier for people to leave. It's an incentive to leave, to not stay. Put on top of that, the mandates on the um, on the COVID uh, tests that are supposed to be taken or, or the um, vaccinations. When you put all of these things together, you wonder why are we not supporting our all volunteer force instead of trying to impose all these political burdens? I'll tell you, a lot has changed since I founded CMR many years ago. Um, the trend line has not always been positive. Uh, the only thing that's good about what we're seeing now is there are reinforcements. There are new organizations like yours that are starting up. Uh, I think there are some leaders in Congress who are starting to step up. We saw that with the defense bill debate last year, which had a good result. Uh, we are poised now in 2022, looking forward to make more progress with a better Congress, with a better president to turn things around. It's the only military we have. Uh, and if it doesn't work, then our entire nation is in jeopardy. So if you don't like the state of New York, you can move to Florida. If you don't like one church, you can go to another church. If you don't like one school, you can move to another school. But we've only got one military. So it's up to all of us, whether you have military background or not, to watch what's happening with policies in the armed forces. And that's why we welcome the support of people. We're a combination of people with military background or civilian. 
Uh, we're very unusual in that regard because we're right at the intersection of defense issues and social issues. Uh, that's our mission, military social issues. And we analyze them, we write about them. Uh, we appreciate hearing from people in uniform and I hope I'll hear from more in, uh, in future years. Good. So Elaine, how, how do people learn more about the Center for Military Readiness? What's well, your website? Our, our website is 3w's.cmrlink.org. Uh, just like we have Department of Defense, Defense Link. We are CMR Link. And there's a portal there on the top right. If someone is in uniform and they'd like to be in touch with me in confidence, you can do that there. Uh, it's a confidential contact section there. Uh, but there's a variety of articles. We have issues. We have news releases from time to time. Uh, just browse through any topic. Do a search, whatever topic you're interested in. Chances are we've written about it. And uh, we're posting new articles all the time. Um, we're very busy. It's a big agenda. And um, we appreciate everybody's help. And Great. by the way, contributions are tax deductible um, because we don't get government subsidies like some of the adversary groups that we deal with. Uh, but we do the best we can on a small budget, but we certainly appreciate the help of people if they'd like to help out. Great. Thanks so much, Elaine. Thank and we'll you. be following your, your mission. I'll tell you what, you, you are a um, force multiplier. So, so thanks for all your, your work. Thanks for your work too. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you.